Hello, everyone. I'm Don Chu. And I'm Brian Ray. This is AI Podcasts in 26.1 Minutes. Where you get latest info on AI. Meet the most interesting practitioners of AI. People whom we like in AI. People who will answer our emails. Supplication of our future robot overlords. Why AI matters for everyone. Learn all you need to know about AI today during your drive home. We're here today with Avali, a principal machine learning engineer at Unity, leading the development of cool new PaaS platform as a service to run Unity simulations at scale in the cloud. In the past, he's worked at Amazon, was part of the early team at Microsoft Azure, and has done his own startup in the field of machine learning now. Welcome, Avili. So uh, I'm here with Don Chu. Yeah, Don, do you want to ask Avili a couple questions about um, his past here? Yeah, um, I know Avili a little bit. As I shared with Brian, I, I shared with Brian that you're one of my favorite one, people. I'm his favorite person, but you're two or three, right? Well, Brian's my best friend, but I. You're my favorite person because you're you're more benign than than Brian is. <laughs> and I've always appreciated that about you. Brought her a great start. <laughs> um, but to get the the AI stuff uh, started, um, Amelie, do you mind sharing with us what got you started with machine learning and then onto AI? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, first off, I'd like to thank you guys for inviting me to this podcast. Uh, it's great being here. Um, and to answer a question, Don, on what got me started, I actually started on AI a pretty long time ago when I was, I remember when I was a little boy in India, I was you know, programming neural networks in C++ using perceptrons. We didn't have deep learning back then. Uh, I will not mention the year that was, uh, <laughs> but suffice it to say it was pretty, pretty long time ago. Uh, I, when I did my, um, uh, uh, grad school in CMU, I took a couple of uh, machine learning courses. Uh, back then, it was unfashionable to call it AI. My, my advisor said, don't use the term AI. It's a dirty word. Uh, and uh, then I kind of got distracted by distributed computing, which was uh, kind of up and happening, got recruited by Amazon to work on the retail website, then joined Azure, uh, then got back into machine learning slash AI when I started doing my own startup. Right. where uh, we created a, a startup for a mobile app uh, owners uh, for increasing user engagement. We worked with a company. Uh, one of our first customers was, uh, was an app called The Hunt, which got acquired by Pinterest. Uh, we drove up their mobile uh, user engagement by four times uh, as compared to what they were doing by hand. Uh, and since then, I worked with a couple of other customers. Uh, one interesting one was a company that builds uh, sensors for your stock. So these are fabric sensors that measure how you're running. And I did some work with them to create a recommendation system for buying shoes and to kind of recommend the best running periods and running times and whatnot. So you're out of, you're out of Seattle too. So you, both you and Don are uh, elbow to elbow there in the rainy city of Seattle. What is the tech scene like in Seattle for you? You've been over at Amazon, Azure, and now doing your own thing. What's what's it like to be in the heat of it in the, the rainy city? 
Well, one thing I think I, I should highlight as well is Avale was part of the team of 30 that launched Azure as we know it now. So he's being pretty modest about that. Is that yeah. So how did that how did that feel to launch Azure and be part of the early culture there? Um, it was it was good and just a slight modification down there. Uh, it was a small team by Microsoft standards, so it was sixty people, uh, but uh, it was awesome. Um, we we did things that you know were pretty new at that time. Azure was actually uh, the first to come out with a platform as a service concept before its time. Uh, AWS was mostly into infrastructure as a service or IaaS, and then of course Azure pivoted into the, uh, the IaaS world and. Right now, it's doing really well. It's kind of the closest competitor to AWS, uh, which is saying a lot. Um, and it, it feels good. The tech scene out here is pretty cool. It's, it's pretty varied. Um, and a little point of interest was that Don actually kind of pulled me into working on Python. I was mostly C++ and Ruby before that. Uh, and since then, you know, we, we've had a pretty vibrant Python community here. C Sharp, obviously, because of the Microsoft interest. Um, but yeah, the tech scene is pretty happening. It, it's pretty vibrant. Uh, the startup scene, not as, as vibrant as the Valley, I would say, uh, especially for consumer startups, but uh, the tech scene in general is pretty cool. Well, your daughter is a Pythonista also. So. Yes, she is uh, 11 years old and she's already programmed in Python. So I'm pretty proud of her. But also, um, going back to what you did as a startup founder for the hunt. Remind me how long it took you to um, build that first product that helped them get so much money. So there, there's an interesting story there. Uh, my co-founder and I, we kind of uh, had talked to the Hunt CEO, um, and he, he took uh, a leap of faith on us and said, you know what, you guys are uh, startup founders, but I, I like what you guys are doing. So... Um, the product that is described is very, very nice. Uh, it, this was on a Thursday. He's like, can I see a demo of it on Monday? He said, sure. Uh, the reality was we actually did not have a real product. It was more, we were doing more customer discovery. We did not expect somebody to say, sure, show me a demo. So this was in San Francisco. So we raced back home to Seattle, uh, worked straight through day and night. And by Monday, we had- How was, how was it was received? Was it, was it perfect in every way? <laughs> uh, no way uh, but he liked what he saw initially right and so then he had us kind of engage with his dev director and from there we kind of took it over and then kind of uh, iterated a few times and it took us i think a month or so to get it down to where it was working pretty good uh, uh, and they were seeing good amount of lift uh, we introduced some more metrics into it and they were able to actually measure the lift and they actually gave us some good advice. Like we weren't mobile app developers. So we said, oh, Lyft means somebody clicks on the message or taps on the message that we send them. And they were like, no, no, that's a bad idea because people don't usually tap on the message that they see immediately. They just see it, it registers in their mind and they might tap on it a week later. So even if the tap comes a week later, you still count it towards your metric. Right. And so, so they actually helped us along the way as well. Well, in some sense, Tim Weingarten and... Um their team at the hunt became your startup's uh, product managers, right? Yeah, I mean, they, they really helped shape the product. 
No, and it was a great result for them. Um, from what I remember, um, you're addressing what, like 160,000 unique uh, users for them on a weekly basis? So, so this is basically product a product recommendation yep. um, tool, sounds like. Is that correct? Um, yes, you could definitely view it as that. It, we wanted to make it a bit more than that. We wanted to have it as a conversational tool between the mobile app and the user. So, you know, we would be like, hey, uh, this is an item of your interest or these this thing is happening of your interest or, you know, a bunch of your friends are interested in this. So maybe you might be interested in this. So uh, it went a bit beyond product recommendation, but at its core, we were using collaborative filtering based techniques, uh, which, you know, as it is kind of the go to uh, machine learning. Are you allowed to say or, or can you say what the underlying technology look like in, in the hunt? Um, in the hunt, no, I don't think I I am allowed to say that, uh, and I actually don't have much visibility into sure. that. I can tell you about what we did for them, uh, and that was like I said, we started out building a very simple uh, kind of naive base classifier. Um, then we started using uh, Lucene uh, and Stoller uh, for text based, so we would kind of mine the product description or the item description and the uh, comments that uh, users had made and kind of uh, match those two, right? Uh, using text-based kind of uh, TF-IDF-based techniques, which Lucene uh, and right. Solar provided uh, pretty nicely back then. Uh, and then we kind of moved into collaborative filtering. Uh, we started using a bunch of Python and scikit-learn. Uh, this is all pre-TensorFlow days, right? Uh, kind of deep learning was kind of making was versioning in academia and I had started hearing about it, but I hadn't actually gone and if you were to go back and do it again, would you do anything different? So given today's technology and space? Um, I mean, in terms of uh, the technology space, it has matured so much, right? The machine learning world has matured so much. We're talking 2013, 2014 uh, uh, and, and now. Uh, now we have TensorFlow, we have PyTorch, we have all these fantastic data munging tools, which we did not have back then. So yes, in terms of the actual technical implementation, it would look a lot different. And I, I suspect our kind of time to market would also be pretty fast. Well, it was pretty fast back then, um, getting yeah. something together for the hunt on such short notice. But I mean, even Spark was pretty new at that point, right? Yeah, yeah, I and mean, we were, I think, using Spark Beta. Yeah, I remember uh, the uh, agony you had trying to get Spark to work on Azure. Yeah, and this is, again, this is pre-EMR supporting Spark, right? So EMR in AWS now supports Spark, which is kind of easy, uh, makes it easy for people to use Spark. Um, but this was pre-that, and so we had to kind of set up our own Spark cluster what helped was we were both from Azure, so we kind of knew a thing or two about distributed systems. So we were able to do that. Uh, but yeah, it was uh, painful. What can you tell us about some of the other startups, uh, Enrix and Formian, and then your own Avile Labs and, and things like that that you went through before Unity? 
So, uh, so Informian was the startup that we have been talking about so far, uh, which was the mobile recommendation-based startup. Uh, Inrix is actually a company in Seattle, uh, in, in Bellevue, actually, um, that does uh, road traffic analytics. So what I did for them was they collect data of, uh, by uh, GPS systems and other means from all over the world. And uh, they have a model to build uh, traffic predictions or, or the speed at which traffic is going to flow on a given segment of road in the next minute. And so what I did for them was I built an analytics uh, website, an analytics offering. And so you, you know, somebody could say, I want all of uh, Washington State, and I want to know some traffic metrics in that, or I want to know what hap- what's happening on um, I-405. Uh, so where would you get the data for that? I mean, where do you usually find data for all these projects, in fact, that have machine learning in it? Is that a challenge to find data or is it just, you know, provided pretty much by whoever you're working with? The latter. Um, in, in case of Indrix, right, they were already buying this data from a bunch of uh, third party providers. And uh, they also had uh, deals with uh, fleet companies where they would install their uh, uh, sensors in their trucks and then they would send data to Indrix. Um, uh, in case of Avila Labs, which was my second startup after Informian, uh, which is where I was working with this uh, uh, fabric sensor company. It's called Sensoria. Uh, they're still around. Uh, again, uh, data was not a problem because they had they were collecting all this telemetry from their socks, right? From from the from the socks that they were selling. They had all of this data, and they were like, "What do we do with it?" Avila, can you help us uh, monetize? So for real world gathering data from socks is what you're telling me. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's fascinating. Yeah. So what they had was they had they had socks, uh, and they had a fabric circuit. Like you could see the circuit in the sock, right? And then they would have an anklet that you would snap onto the sock, and that anklet was an IoT device which had Bluetooth sensors in it, and that would. Uh, talk over Bluetooth with your phone. So every every so often, it would kind of sync with your phone, send all the telemetry data to the phone, and then the phone would upload it to the cloud. And what information was gathered from these socks? Like the smell of Don's feet or? <laughs> I My feet are embarrassingly smelly. <laughs> yeah, he also uh, wears these compressors when he flies, which uh, I hope work. Uh, what kind of data do you get out of socks there? Uh, uh, so things like the gate. Uh, I actually didn't even know some of the terms that they were using because I'm not not an avid runner myself. But supination, pronation—that's the kind of position of your foot yeah. as it's running and moving. When uh, that can be used to uh, kind of compute the gait, uh, your stride length, your speed, uh, and then a bunch of the stuff that the app gives out. Right. So your location. So you might like running in a particular track. Uh, and, you know, we can suggest, hey, it's going to be sunny there tomorrow, so you might want to go and run there. You seem to be doing better there. Um, and users would also submit what shoes they were wearing uh, because that's a big deal amongst uh, runners. Uh, they need to get just the right kind of shoes. Uh, and so we would kind of correlate the shoe that you're wearing with your running performance and then be able to predict that, hey, if you wear this other kind of shoe, you might run better. 
Well, Brian's a champion distance runner. So this sounds like uh, useful stuff for you. What's your mileage at now? I, I run at least 15 to 10 feet a day to the bathroom and back. But uh, tell me more about this, what you are going, what you have going on now um, in the last couple of years with, with the 3D simulations in the cloud. That sounds really fascinating. And then what cloud would this be? Oh, yeah, this is extremely fasc- fascinating. I think it's uh, some of the coolest thing, one of the coolest things that I've done in the past, I don't know, five, six years. Uh, so right now uh, we have our offering on Google Cloud Platform. But we are kind of thinking of it, providing this on all the major clouds, that is AWS and Azure. Uh, what this is doing is, um, say you have, so Unity is, is a game engine, right? It's used by people, by game developers to build 3D games. Uh, for example, Pokemon Go was built on Unity. The first Assassin's Creed was built on Unity. Um uh, and so, you know, it's like everybody thinks, yeah, sure, uh, you know, game engine uh, for game developers. But what we found was uh, a lot of other industries like medical industries, robotics, uh, autonomous vehicles have also started using Unity because at its core, it's a 3D rendering engine, right? You can render a 3D world. Um, and so they were like, okay, so we are rendering some realistic uh, three-dimensional world, like you know, an autonomous vehicle uh, company might be rendering downtown San Francisco and driving through that to test out their uh, their uh, AV software. Uh, and they're like, well, we need to do this at scale. We need to be able to run a thousand instances of you know San Francisco with different road conditions and lighting and uh, some, and we want 500 of those instances to be in rural Montana where it's snowing hard. How do you do that? And so that is the service that we built. Right? That's that's what I've been working on for the past uh, six to ten months uh, out here, um, where we actually built the service where you know you can just submit any Unity build and and declare what kind of instances you want, and we'll just scale it out for you. And let me get this straight. So if I want to create a simulation world mm-hmm. where I go to the grocery store, let's just say it's three-dimensional space and has a certain layout and every aisle is Don shoe. And usually if I see Don at the grocery store, I turn the other way. Mm-hmm. In this case, I just sort of get stuck in the simulation world. Is that correct? And then would they build this themselves or would this be something that you would build for an end client? No. So this is something that the customers would build themselves. Uh, the good news here is Unity's user base is pretty big. Uh, like in LinkedIn, if you look for uh, job titles along with software engineer and machine learning engineer, you have Unity engineer, right? Uh, so it's actually fairly straightforward to build a simulation in Unity. Uh, it's actually one of the use- easiest uh, simulation builders that I've used. Um, and once you do that, like I can, I can talk a bit more about the use cases, right? Because what you mentioned, Brian, about you know you walking down the grocery store. Um, Think, think about Amazon Go, right? Where uh, you literally walk down the grocery store, pick items and walk out, right? How did they train their models for that? Uh, I mean, I, I don't know how they did that, but if I were them, I would need a huge data set of grocery store items, right? To train my models on. Um, and uh, for machine learning, computer vision purposes, kind of the go-to data set for vision is ImageNet. 
which has around 14 million images, 20,000 different categories. And it took them two and a half years to build this data set. With using something like simulations in the cloud, uh, we call it elastic simulations, you can do something like that just for grocery store items in two days. Um, okay. Does that does that kind of clarify the use case? So also um, sounds like the people using your product are training their models using these simulated mm-hmm. environments. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so it, sounds, can... it sounds great. I mean, so it sounds like if you, but usually when I think of a model um, training data, like a ground truth training data, would there be labels associated with this? So would they create a simulation uh, that you already know that it's done, that's standing mm-hmm. there in the aisle, and that they mm-hmm. provide that information as input to be simulated? And then everything else is simulated around the known dons in the world, and you add yeah. noise, and you add different layers to that? Is that how it works? Exactly how it works. Uh, so in, in, in think of a real well, a natural photograph, right? Like like the ones that ImageNet has. Some human being had to painstakingly go and label all the things they could see in that photograph, right? They could see a dining table, a few chairs, maybe a drink, some table mats, whatnot, right? Here, because all the content is being rendered programmatically, the program knows it's rendered a dining table, right? It knows it's rendered Don there. So it can, it can just label Don and say, this photo has a Don and here's the bounding box around, right? Uh, so that's that's the power of this. You can actually create label data sets very fast. That is extremely fascinating. And it sounds like from socks, you know, to stimulations, you've really, to Azure, you've really touched on the gamut of machine learning, probably even early dating from CMU to now. Mm-hmm. So what's, what's next? And we've got about three minutes left or two minutes left. Can you... You sound like you would know the future. If anybody knows the future, it would be you. Um, what's next? Yeah, I wish I knew that. But I can tell you what next is exciting to me. Uh, and to me, I think quantum machine learning is something that is very interesting uh, to me. Uh, at its worst, it will probably be have the same kind of impact that GPUs and TPUs have had, where it's a very powerful new compute resource. And, uh, you know, if, if we actually achieve what is called, quote, unquote, the quantum supremacy. Uh, quantum supremacy. Learning. So quantum machine learning. So does that mean that it's machine learning on quantum computing? Is that is that even invented yet? Does that exist uh-huh. yet? Yeah, it does. It does. Um, there are certain models uh, that you can actually run on quantum computers. There's, in fact, a really cool course on edX called quantum machine learning. If you're interested, you should check it out. Uh, I have a couple of blogs on that as well. Uh, uh, it's, it's a very active field of research, but you're right. It's doing machine learning on quantum computers because you can do optimization really well on quantum computers. Fascinating. Uh, Brian, I thought you had an interest in quantum computing. You've been tracking it. You know, I, I cannot keep up hardly with TPUs and GPUs, not to mention quantum computing. Now, what what quantum computing could mean is, is if I was doing a deep neural network, mm-hmm. I could somehow do the back propagation faster, or I could 
have more registers to compute on or fill in the blanks for me here? What does it really give me at a technical level? At a technical level, you probably might not even need backpropagation at that point, right? Because you can solve, you can solve your cost function optimization problem in a different way. Uh, maybe using differential equations, uh, in which case you would need backpropagation to calculate the differential equations. Maybe not. Uh, and that, again, is a pretty kind of active area of, of research, how to solve uh, quantum optimization problems. But essentially, everything else remains the same. Your cost function optimization, you offload to a quantum, quantum computer, which processes it, processes it far more efficiently than classical computers. Now, this is fascinating. And I thank you very much, Avale, for the, for the time today. Um, any last kind of, we have, we're about a commute level deep into this, and that's what we try to keep this to. That's why it's 26.1 minutes. But any closing thoughts or, 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 or something you want to tell our 300,000 listeners? Uh, closing thoughts, check out uh, Unity's cloud computing, uh, cloud simulations. Uh, we hope to make an announcement in Unite uh, Copenhagen uh, sometime later next month. Uh, Ooh, can I come? What's that? Can I come? Can Don and I come? Can we visit you in Copenhagen? Absolutely. I'll send you the conference. <laughs> Uh, what do you say, Don? Are we going to go to Copenhagen? Do we have a budget? <laughs> Just like the last time we went to San Francisco, Don. Same budget. Yeah, same budget. So you're going to uh, leave me at a hospital. Yeah, yes, basically. Yeah, yeah. But also uh, a little shtick I'm uh, trying out is what's your attitude about AI, Avale, is it, are you optimistic? Is it going to free us from drudgery and liberate human creativity? Or are we uh, preparing for the coming tyranny of robot? Overlords? No, no I'm, I'm super optimistic, right? Otherwise, I wouldn't be in this field. Uh, tyranny of robot overlords, man, that's like, yeah, sure, singularity can happen one day and we can have evil robots. Uh, we cannot live in fear, right? Uh, it's like how Steve Jobs compared computers to the bicycle of the mind. I think that comparison is kind of apt for AI as well. It's kind of taking our civilization to the next step. Right? Just like agriculture took it forward, then wheel took it forward, then industrial revolution took it forward, internet, computers, and AI. Well, that was a great episode. and. Abile, we thank you very, very much for joining us today. Obviously, one of the leading machine learning experts in the world right now, working on fascinating stuff. Thank you. Thanks for, thanks for stopping by, and we really appreciate it. That's a wrap. Thank you for joining us on AI Podcast. You can reach us at ai-podcast.com or find us on Spotify or iTunes. Thank you again, and we'll see you soon.